2: Morgan, thank you very much. And live from the NASDAQ market site in the heart of New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. And here is what's on tap tonight. Striking distance, the S&P 500 just over a dozen points from an all-time high. The Dow closing at a record high. And the NASDAQ, while down slightly, still up 44% this year. Can the market keep its mojo? We'll debate that one. Plus, all aboard. The transports having a red-hot December up 13% so far this month, 25% for the year. But can you still jump on the train trade? Of course, the transports are much more than just that. And later, is the rebound in financials for real? The options action on Apple. And is Tesla about to get yet another competitor from China? Good afternoon, everybody. I'm Tyler Matheson, in for Melissa Lee, coming to you live from Studio B at the NASDAQ. Uh, On the desk tonight, Steve Grasso, Courtney Garcia, Mike Coe, and our guest trader for the hour, Chris Harvey from Wells Fargo Securities. Welcome, one and all. And we begin with stocks clawing their way to all-time highs ahead of the year's final trading day tomorrow. The Dow closing at another at another record level. The S&P just points from a record. And the Nasdaq sort of essentially flat on the session. Small cap stocks among December's biggest winners so far. And there's just one day left. The Russell 2000 jumping almost 14%. For the month to date, real estate also driving big gains, rounding more than 9%. It is the month's top S&P sector, by the way. So is now a good time, folks, to pop the champagne and celebrate? Or should investors worry that a hangover is ahead? Uh, Courtney, I'm going to begin with you. Then I'm going to go to Chris because I know Chris has some thoughts here. But why don't you take it away?
3: Yeah, and I, I think this rotation that you're seeing in the markets has it really started in early October. I think that's going to continue, all right, as we're ending the year and we look into 2024. Um, you've missed a lot of upside by not being in some of these rotation trades. But I don't think you've missed out on all of this. I do think if you're not in, it's still a good time to get in. You want to make sure that you're invested on not just those top seven companies right now, because those very well might slow down next year. And there's a lot of room to run in things like small cap and real estate and all those interest rate sensitive things that you mentioned. You want to make sure you're diversified right now to take advantage of that next year. The market
2: year. is healthier for this broadening, broadening out that has been taking place uh, in, in various sectors. Some have been orphaned and left behind. Mm-hmm. but but many uh, have not
3: Absolutely and and I think that's where you need to make sure that you are invested in these things right because um, you know, when the markets are looking forward, they're probably over-anticipating the rate cuts next year. I mean, they're expecting anywhere from four to six cuts next year, and I don't know if that's going to happen. But in all likelihood, we're seeing a peak in rates. Rates are at some point, and it's, if not, just say the same, come down at some point, and that's only going to continue to benefit things. And the economy is still on good footing, so I think you want to make sure that you're, you're forward-looking. We're going to
2: talk about rate cuts in just a minute, folks. But but, and and whether as many as the market expects is what you guys expect. But Chris, I want to turn to you because we were talking earlier and yep. you anticipate some sloppiness in the market as we turn the yep. page to 2024 I, why and where's it and how is it going to show up I, I think that's right so everything is price in. perfection is not the right word but when we look we have a 250
4: number for 25 and we're at 19 times at this point that's pretty healthy we do think the underlying fundamentals are okay but as we go from the macro to the micro which is what we're going to do when we turn the calendar some of the micro is not as pretty as, as expected. And if you look at the reports from FedEx, from Nike, even from General Mills, the market wasn't really appreciating some of the micro and, and some of the, the guidance. And as we look at guidance, we think that people really have to bring down guidance, or typically what you see is the beginning of the year, people wanna moderate that guidance. And, and with equity markets this high, we think there's gonna be a little bit of choppiness, a little bit of sloppiness next year. You wanna, you
2: probably can buy that, but, but Be careful and and don't be too bullish entering the year. That's Too too bullish entering the year. But we just put up Wells Fargo's year-end 2024 price target, which um, I assume you still stand by. It is below where the market is today. So that would suggest that it's not just the beginning of the year that might be choppy and troublesome, but maybe by the end of the year. There it is, 46.25. That's right. So one thing is we put that target together back before the Fed came out and did what it did.
4: And that changed things a significant amount. The cost of capital has come down a lot. And we'll look at that and we'll take in into account earnings and so on and so forth. We do think the first half is going to be more difficult when you have the VIX down at 12, 13, when everything is priced really well. There's a lot of optimism there. But we think if you get that pullback, pull you can buy that pullback. But it could be a pretty, it could be 5%, could be upwards of 10% in the first half of the year. So just be careful. A lot of optimism out there. A lot of people came into last year, excuse me, ended last year really negative. We had a great year this year. Mm-hmm. And now
2: we're seeing the exact opposite. Yeah, a lot of people pretty positive, And let's see what happens next yeah. year. Though uh, generally, when, when the market is higher by 20% or more in a year, the ensuing year is also a positive year two out of three times. It is. And can you imagine
5: having to make a price target or, or, or a number for the S&P in January from 12 months out? Oh, I, So, so I, I think there's a lot of, to Chris's point, the Fed didn't do what they did when he made his target. Right. right. That goes in right right off the bat. So you got to give him this probably a five percent air to the upside on that. I don't want to put words in this about but I, I just did. I just got him in trouble with compliance. <laughs> so but when you look at the comments that we've heard, so the safe haven was the seven mega cap stocks because that's where non dwarfs, the seven non dwarfs. So that's where we saw the regional banks get into a problem. So with all that money migrated even more so into where they had cash flow and where they had fortress like balance sheets. Now it's coming out saying, OK, let's broaden up because we're not going to see maybe we're not going to see a recession. I'm of the belief we've already seen a recession at the back half of 2022. Hmm. So you could throw that in the mix. So if we're going to see a soft landing, no recession, easier funding for the Russell 2000. Russell 2000, 40% of Russell 2000 is unprofitable. So immediately when you look at these companies... If you give them better access to money, they're going to run money. They're going to be better. They're going to have an easier shot at profitability. A hundred percent. Or they're they're going to survive. Right. So forget about being profitable. They're, They're more likely to survive. So that index can
2: trade higher. And that's what we've seen. Mike, you've been listening patiently out there wherever you are on the West Coast. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously, I think that some of the names that really have seen the best gains this year, they could be vulnerable, I think, early in the new year. I sort of think back to the beginning of 2022 when we hit that January 4th peak and then sort of rolled over, you know, some of the best performing names in the Russell 1000. And I mentioned the Russell 1000 instead of the S&P 500 when I'm talking about sort of the large cap companies, because there are some names in there. That have really done exceptionally well. That wouldn't necessarily be eligible for S&P 500 inclusion, and I'll include in names like a firm in there. We talked yesterday about, uh, you know, Coinbase. I think these are the types of names where the companies are not profitable, uh, and where I I think that if sort of the bloom comes off the rose, they're the most vulnerable for sure. But there are also some mega cap companies that even now, if you were looking at them with fresh eyes, you would say these are still reasonably valued. I think. The most notable example of the best performing stocks we've seen this year in that category would be Meta because you know at the tail end of 2022 the reason everybody hated Meta was largely because we thought that Mark Zuckerberg with his controlling uh, vote in in Meta was just going to focus on his own pet projects and was spending billions of dollars. When that turned around, the company now is cheap and it's growing, you know, let's call it 15 to 20% on the bottom line and trading how to market multiple or cheaper. So I still think there are some decent names. And you know, kind of as Courtney was pointing out, she said early October is when we really saw some broadening out of this rally. And the way to see that, if you're looking at this at home, is just take a look at RSP, which is the ETF that tracks the equal weight uh, S&P 500 versus SPY. It's actually outperformed uh, so far in Q4 by you know about 30 to 40 basis points.
2: Yeah, and there you see it up almost year-to-date, up 12%, uh, 7% for the month. All right, let's talk interest rates and the Fed's policy uh, on rates, a key topic in the CNBC Delivering Alpha survey that we released today. We polled about 300 strategists and money managers, and more than half of them, as you see there, 54% plus 19%, more than half of them believe that the Fed will begin cutting rates in at least by the second quarter. A minority seeing it happen in the final half of 2024. Chris, your reaction to this, to the majority of um, uh, Swamis saying, hey, it's good, <laughs> they're going to start cutting before the end of the first half of the year. And they're, they're also discounting a lot of interest rate cuts. All true. So what we what have- if it doesn't happen? Uh, if it doesn't happen, then
4: we've got a little bit of a problem. Then we're <laughs> going to have a repricing of risk, and we're going to have a pretty aggressive repricing of risk. Right. And a lot of people are saying, oh, well, listen to all the Fed governors and they're coming out and they're saying, well, calm down. And what I say is if your mom and dad say you can have ice cream and your older brother says you can't, you can still have ice cream. So in all likelihood, those cuts are coming. They're probably going to come sooner than the market originally thought. But if we get some economic data or whether inflation data that kind of pushes it back, then we will have a bit of a problem. And the other problem we have is the Fed is now lowering rates. You're going to light up the housing market. You're going to – that has a big multiplier in the economy. That has a big multiplier on the job picture and also on wages. So inflation may not be over, and we may be dealing with it in the second half of, of next year, which could slow things down.
2: Courtney, react to that. And, and also to the, the – the, the market seems to be anticipating uh, 150 or more basis points of cuts next year, mm-hmm. something like – which suggests six quarter-point cuts, or maybe they do 50-point my, my more broad baseline question is, why is the Fed going to cut interest rates next year? Why?
3: Well, I think- The in, economy's good. Right. And the economy is good. But if inflation is, in fact, coming back to their targets, and a lot of things are working itself out, like supply chain issues, which were keeping inflation high. So if inflation is coming down, they can start to bring rates down in order to match that. But I think that's the big question, right, is- if rates are, are coming to the extent that the markets expect them to, is that just because inflation's coming down or because the economy is softening or there is some sort of recession? And that's why I think there's probably be less cuts than the market is currently anticipating. Mm-hmm. But there's really two reasons why the markets can do well next year. Um, number one is rates coming down, which is going to be beneficial, to, like to Steve's point, specifically to small caps. But also is profits... Um, accelerate next year and earnings improve which is expected to as we're seeing this earnings recession likely ending here that also is going to be a really good thing for the economy and so i think these are two things that can work together but i think those earnings and profitability are likely going to do well next year and that's that's going to boost the market so
2: steve does the fed cut rates partly as insurance so that the economy does not go into a recession is that partly what's yeah would, would drive the cuts Well, they're in restrictive status right now, which is what Jay Powell
5: has said. So the reason why. So I've heard that pushback of why are we going to cut rates? What would the economy is going to be in such poor shape? That's the reason why they're cutting rates. No, it's to Courtney's point. Inflation has fell precipitously because this was a supply issue is a supply chain issue that was basically self-created. So he was right when he said it was transitory. He just had to expand on what transitory (laughs) actually meant. But if you have a PCE at 2%, there's no need to have rates where they are right now. So you don't have to be crashing in the economy if if, uh, milk, eggs, cheese, gasoline, if everything continues to fall in a dramatic fashion – then he is too restrictive. He's got to cut
2: rates. That has nothing to do with the economy falling out of bed. All righty. Our next guest thinks the broadening of today's rally, or the rally we've been seeing uh, over the past couple of months, uh, could carry over into the new year. BMO's chief investment strategist, Young-Yu Ma, joins us now with his 2024 outlook. We'll get to that outlook in just a moment. But in the, in the uh, credit where credit is due department, you were soft landing before soft landing was cool. You still feel that way? We do feel that way. The pieces have come together. We talked about
6: that a year ago, that we thought the elements were in place to have a soft landing, that the stable and healthy labor market, really unprecedented job openings provided such a buffer that we could weather the higher interest rate. So that's really come together and we think it's still playing out and we're in the latter
2: innings of that soft landing now. What does that imply then for returns on equities and fixed income assets? We think both will be healthy in
6: 2024. We'll probably return to more normal ranges, both for fixed income and equities. Uh, We don't expect a gangbuster year. We do think uh, that it's a year for a balanced approach to risk. But we definitely think that there's a positive backdrop
2: for risk into
6: 2024.
2: So you're looking for returns in equities that would be more along the historical average of seven to nine percent, something like that, or what?
6: Uh, looking for a bit more than that, sort of maybe mm-hmm. high single digits, but more likely low double digits. Uh, we think that's achievable given the broadening of the rally and still what should be a strong mega cap sector uh, in 2024. We think that the rally will continue to be broad based as it's been over the last couple of months here. Steve, so when you when you look at wh- the path of uh, the
5: market this year, and everyone talks about. The performance was, uh, you know, doubled pretty much from a handful of stocks. When you have to convince people of your thesis right now, what's the major pushback that you're not going to see the mega cap deliver the the earnings punch that they did before? Or is it that the lower tier stocks are going to outperform?
6: You know, I think some of the pushback is uh, just a bit of uh, reluctance or incredulity that uh, the mega caps have run so far so fast, and they continue to do well in 2024 and hold up the markets. Uh, we don't think they're going to have the outperformance that they had in 2023, but we still think they'll do well and, and provide some leadership in the market. So I think that's the biggest point. Uh, and I don't think investors have caught on quite as much uh, as we believe will be the case in 2024, that the rally will continue to be broad. I think investors have been burned for many, many years uh, over small caps and over value, And there's still a little bit of reluctance to jump into these areas. And I think that 2024 will be
2: the year uh, that shows strength in these areas as well. Broad rally by size, by sector uh, and so forth. Uh, Courtney?
3: Now, I'm curious what your take are on bonds right now, which actually I see that you had noted a little bit about here, Um, because really what we've seen with investors is they're seeing really good yields on money markets. They're seeing an inverted yield curve and they're not wanting to touch bonds, which I've done really well the last two months. I think people aren't necessarily um, seeing that when the equity markets are also doing, you know, as well, if not better. Um, I'm curious what your thoughts are looking into 2024 on the bond market.
6: Well, we actually extended duration a couple months ago at a good time when 10-year yields were around 5%. We think they're actually below equilibrium now. We think as we get into the second half of 2024, uh, we're going to see the 10-year yield back above 4%. So we're not excited about extending duration here. We do think bonds will probably uh, return mid-single-digit range, sort of uh, investment-grade bonds for 2024. But we think there'll be better entry points if people are looking to extend duration Uh, probably in the second half of the year as growth resumes uh, and we think earnings accelerate and the economy stabilizes.
2: Chris, why don't you try out your thesis for 2024 on Young You? (laughs) So uh, I have a a couple questions for you before we get to our
4: thesis. M&A has been pretty lackluster this year. Now we have lower rates. We have good valuation. We have uh, an economy that's kind of muddling along. Seems like a great time for M&A. And if we do have M&A, do we have a lot more speculation in around that that M&A cycle?
6: Uh, We do think M&A is going to be a big story for 2024, probably the second half more than the first half. But we do think M&A activity is going to pick up overall, and we think that's going to boost some of the sectors, uh, particularly probably biotech, uh, where we expect to see a fair amount of M&A activity, Uh, both interest rates coming down the second half of the year, uh, a lot of companies sitting on big cash piles. A lot of private equity firms sitting on cash piles as well. We think MA is going to be a big story of the second half of the year. So, uh, who does that benefit? Of course, biotech, but it also benefits some of the investment banks uh, that are heavy in MA as well.
2: Young, you, why don't I get you to respond to Chris? what Chris began by saying, and that is that he sees maybe the first half of next year being a little sloppy, maybe because of uh, how far we've come and, and other factors. I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but, but that's what I do best. Uh, <laughs> anyhow, what, well, how do you re- react to that, to the idea that the first half of the year may be, quote, a little sloppy?
6: Well, we do think there'll be a bit of a slowdown in consumer spending, and we don't think that Q4 earnings are going to be gangbuster. I think a lot of it depends on how much inflation stays down. We get these consistently low readings and whether the 10-year yield stays below 4%. If we get all those in place, I think we kind of muddle along uh, in the first few months until we see better growth prospects in the second half and until the Fed starts cutting rates. Uh, In terms of being sloppy, I think Let's see what happens on the pullbacks. If breath breath stays pretty healthy on the pullbacks and small caps hang in there, I think I would get more optimistic. If breath starts to break down on the pullbacks, I think that would be a little bit of cause for concern. Maybe not that uh, our thesis is uh, no longer holds, but maybe that it might be pushed off a little bit and some of that sloppiness that Chris talked about uh, could be in order for a couple months.
2: All right, Young Yuma, thank you so much for being with us tonight. Have a happy new year, sir. We appreciate it. Young Yu Ma Thank you. of BMO. Mike, any thoughts on uh, how to trade uh, what we just uh, talked about?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things that's interesting about Young Yu Ma's uh, forecast for the coming years is that he's anticipating, uh, you know, fewer rate cuts, I think, than the market is baking into the cake. And I think that the market could ultimately, in this instance, be a victim of its own success. I mean, just a little thought experiment. If we catch uh, another 5% in the S&P uh, from here, get us up to around 50 5250 50-ish or so, whatever, get into those kinds of numbers, it's hard to imagine that you're going to see the kind of rate cuts uh, that everybody's anticipating. So that might be part of what he's forecasting, is that if the whole picture is a little bit better uh, than people think, then you're just not going to get those rate cuts. And then you could end up getting the sloppiness that Chris is forecasting a little bit later.
2: Steve, button it off for us.
5: Yeah, so, so I think you could look at it a, a number of different ways. The path is definitely lower in rates. It depends on when, it, when it's going to happen. But when you look at where the market is, I don't think the, the, the Fed is taking the cues from the market anymore, nor would they say that they ever did. They're taking the cues from inflation. And I think you're going to see if the market does have a sloppy setup in the first month or two, what will people do? They'll sell the small caps and they'll go right into the safe havens. I think ultimately, maybe a test in
2: January, but ultimately the market's moving higher. All righty. Coming up, uh, will there be more Microsoft magic in 2024? Shares up big in 23, but can the climb continue into the new year? The latest price target hike out of Wall Street next. Plus, transport stocks having a very merry holiday season. The group climbing nearly 8% in December. So which names can keep this trade trucking higher? We will debate that when fast money returns in two minutes you're
0: watching fast money here on cnbc we'll be right back you seek the key but first you must learn the ways of precision craft and performance with acura's all-electric ZDX, with a premium bang and Olufsen sound system up to a 313 mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy.
2: Oh no, Now I can talk. Welcome back to Fast Money, everybody. Time for our call of the day. It is on Microsoft. The stock on a tear this year, up 60 percent. And one analyst says it could just keep on climbing. Wedbush's Dan Ives says micro- Microsoft is having its iPhone moment with its AI monetization. Ives raising his price target to $450 from 4 and a quarter, and maintaining his outperform rating on Microsoft, predicting that its AI tool Copilot could add another $25 billion to the top line by 2025. What do you make of the call, Courtney?
3: Um, so I think with Microsoft, I think there's really three things that it can continue to do well. Number one is they're, they're very likely one of the best who can benefit from AI, um, which is clearly why this um, price increase is happening. But also with the Activision um, acquisition, you're going to likely see some um, additional opportunities in gaming. And also when it comes to PCs, everybody bought their PCs during COVID. There's about a three-year cycle that's coming up again, and I think that's likely going to benefit Microsoft as well. So I think there's a lot of reasons that they can do well. All of that being said, though, um, it's not something I'm overly waiting right now because it is one of those companies that have done so well this year. I absolutely want to own it, but I still think there's a lot of other t- opportunities. I don't want to kind of you know beat a dead horse. I know we've talked a lot about our, our small caps and our real estate. There's other areas I would add money to, but I definitely would still want to own Microsoft.
2: Mike, let me turn to you and, and note that in our Delivering Alpha survey that we referenced just in the last segment, uh thirty 30- Nine percent say Microsoft is the best big cap tech stock to invest in for A.I. And 44 percent, two out of five, say Microsoft will be the best uh, performer in the market out of that magnificent seven in 2024. Your thoughts?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, kind of to Courtney's point, I think at 30 times, that's the only challenge. I mean, it's it's usually going to trade at a significant premium to the market. It does right now at about 30 times versus let's call it 20 but this is also a company that has nearly doubled EPS over the course of the last five years. Cash flow generation, huge moat, and a great way to leverage AI across their platform. Uh, you know, I, I think it's often very difficult in situations like this. You, you know, this is a great company. Is it a great price? No. Is it a fair price? Yes. And I, I think that's a good enough reason to stay in it if you own it, uh, or to consider buying it if you don't.
2: We talked, Mike, last night about about sort of core holdings, stocks that ought to be in in most diversified portfolios. Is Microsoft one of those in your book? Yes.
1: Yeah. Short, and I think the short sweet answer to that is yes. I think that is. I think Alphabet is, and Meta. And speaking right now on the on the tech side, we're obviously going to be getting a lot of financial earnings coming up. I mean, that's really going to be the news over the course of the next couple couple weeks, I think. And that is actually kind of underperforming this year. And I think it's possible that if we're going to start to see an area to rotate into, that's one that you could take a look at. So that would include names like J.P. Morgan and and things like that.
2: Chris, quick thought either on Microsoft or on on big cap tech generally.
4: Yeah, big. uh, what we like is we like software. We think software is going to outperform hardware. You have a lot of stability. You have great fundamentals. Um, Believe it or not, Microsoft is still under owned by a lot of institutions. And so you could see some upward pressure because of that. And overall, we, we think it's a good call. But really, that's software versus hardware,
2: the stability, and the fact that it's just not a crowded trade, believe it or not. And they are software. I mean, you said. Yeah. Chris, thank you. All right, there's a lot more fast to come. And here is what's coming up next. Planes, trains, and automobiles.
5: The transport trade is fired up, so which names can carry your portfolio to the next level? The traders give their picks next. Plus, betting on the banks. The group is on pace for its best quarter in more than two years, and our next guest says it's just the tip of the iceberg. Why he's favoring financials in 2024, ahead. You're watching Fast Money Live from the NASDAQ Market Site in Times Square. We're back right after this.
2: Welcome back to Fast Money, everybody. It's been a long December for the transport trade, uh, and there's uh, reason to believe maybe next year will be even better than the last. The group up nearly 8% over the past month, nearly 20% so far this year. The XTN S&P Transportation ETF. Say that 10 times fast, Ah. folks, okay? Also up more than 13% just this month. Lyft, JetBlue, Union Pacific, all helping lead the charge. Steve, let's talk about transports. And we were talking before the broadcast. There are transports and then there are transports. Like a lot of sectors, right. there are the, the freight carriers, but then right. there are also the airlines. And there are other, there are lots of ways to sliver this sector.
5: And and if if you think about what was the major catalyst, it all gets back to Powell. Mm-hmm. So once rates, if you look at them on a chart, everything jumped, every ETF jumped, everything jumped as a whole, but transports specifically jumped because if you take off hard landing off the table, then the transports say, oh, we're going to avoid- We're gonna carry more freight. We're we're gonna carry more freight. And then you have Red Sea. And if you have a, a, a confluence of events that are headwinds or potentially can increase pricing for transports or they can avoid a recession, it's a recipe to have it rally aggressively, and that's what you've seen these companies do, Courtney.
3: Yeah, and so and you bring up airlines also, which is kind of the other side of that. And I think that's the same thing as if if a recession is taken off the table, you're likely going to see this continuance of people wanting to travel. And that's where something like a Delta is likely going to be better positioned than something like a Southwest, for example, because what you're seeing is. Um, people have continued to travel, but the demand toward international travel is still pent up post-COVID. So the airlines that have those longer flights uh, international, they're actually going to benefit a little more. And that's actually part of what that trade.
2: And Delta, Mike, is one of your holdings. Why don't you talk about that or transports more broadly?
1: Yeah, I mean, we do own Delta. And I think it sort of goes to what Courtney was talking about. There has been some build out in capacity in Europe, but I think she's right there still is a good demand picture and let's take a look at how something like crude did today you know that was off a couple of bucks that represents about 25% of the operating costs for an airline like Delta the other pressures of course that the airlines were were, were facing is that there's a pilot shortage and then we had some some labor issues just basically with some contract renegotiation some of that is behind us now lower oil prices and as long as demand stays in there as long as the uh, employment picture stays where it is I think it's good. And look, this is trading at uh, less than seven times earnings. So, I mean, we've got good free cash
2: flow. Uh, I think this is a good place to be. All right, Mike, thank you very much. And coming up, no New Year's resolution for the bank trade. Financials ripping higher with the group on pace for its best quarter in more than two years. But can banks keep bumping in 2024? RBC's Gerard Cassidy will join us next to lay out his take and why he says this group is just, just getting going. More on that when Fast Money
0: returns. Missed a moment of fast? Catch us anytime on the go. Follow the Fast Money Podcast. We're back right after this.
2: Welcome back to Fast Money, everybody. Uh, we've got stocks closing mixed with just one trading day left in 2023. What a year it has been. The Dow gaining 50 points, a record close there. NASDAQ snapping a four-day win streak while the S&P is now up five days in a row, albeit a small gain there. On pace for its longest weekly win streak since 2004 and just 13 points, the S&P is from an all-time closing high. Some names hitting their own all-time highs today would be MasterCard, Eaton Corporation, Parker Hannafin, Marriott, Ross Stores, all trading at those all-time high levels, even though a couple of them are shading lower. Banks bouncing back in a big way to end the year. The KBE Bank ETF now in positive territory for 23, pacing for its best quarter since the fourth quarter of 2020. Blackstone, J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, American Express, all touching highs not seen in more than a year today. And our next guest thinks it's just the start for the group, saying investors should go overweight in 2024. Gerard Cassidy is head of U.S. Bank Equity Strategy at RBC Capital Markets. Gerard, welcome. Good to have you with us. Who'd have thunk that the financials would be doing as well as they have been doing, uh, given the fact that it was just nine months ago that we had major failures of a couple of mid-level banks. Very true, Tyler.
7: And when you take a look at what happened back in the spring, it was very, very idiosyncratic. And on top of that, there was no contagion. And the reason there was no contagion was the Fed moved very aggressively, which was good, of course, but also those banks' business models were unique to them. But to your point, now that we see the Fed might be at its terminal rate for Fed funds, and we may actually have a soft landing in 2024, these are two huge positives for the banks, especially when it comes to credit, because credit trumps interest rates. And if we have a good year for credit quality, which we think we will in a soft landing, that's a real positive for the banks. One of the
2: things in your most recent report uh, from December 14th that you point out is that once uh, interest rates hit that terminal rate and begin to roll over, historically speaking, that is a period when banks outperform the broad market and by a substantial measure. Take us through some of that history.
7: Sure, Tyler. In fact, I'm glad you brought that up because the classic example was the 94-95 time period. Some people may remember Federal Reserve Chairman Greenspan raised rates from three to six percent ending in February of 95. The stocks bottomed at the end of 94, and that fall, or that peak in Fed funds rates, was the catalyst for the stocks to go up 55% in 1995. Another good example, Tyler, was 2004-2006 tightening cycle. When you look at that cycle, same thing. The stocks outperformed in 06. They were up twenty over 20%. The challenge, however, as we all remember, was the financial crisis hit in 08, and the stocks were Totally decimated because of credit problems. So those are two good examples people can look to. And the important thing is credit. Credit was not an issue in ninety five, it became a big issue following oh six, and the and
5: the stocks behaved
7: accordingly.
2: Steve?
5: So, so, Gerard, when when I look at I, I call it Jamie uh, Morgan, not J.P. Morgan anymore, because <laughs> it's just such a it, it follows one man at, at this uh, at this point. I'm going to read you this this one line. J.P. Morgan earned nearly 20 percent of all U.S. bank profits in the first three quarters of the year, taking in more than BAC Bank and Citi combined. Do we have to while we making this too complicated is just one bank to buy in the whole stratosphere of the financials?
7: Well, Steve, it's interesting because it was the stock to own this year, J.P. Morgan Chase. It was the classic risk-off name, as Tyler pointed out earlier. In the spring, when we had those bank failures, money flocked to the risk-off trade, and J.P. Morgan was the direct beneficiary. If we are going to see a soft landing next year, and the Fed again is at the terminal rate, I think investors are going to start moving to risk on the likes of a Bank America, Citigroup, Fifth Third, KeyCorp, all of these names. Uh, would do better in a risk-on environment versus what we saw this year.
2: So let's talk a little bit about about credit risks. If you see a soft landing or no um, no recession, basically, there's not going to be much credit risk. They're not going to have to write off bad loans.
7: Tyler, you're absolutely right. And and, and the interesting part is we have new accounting that came in to effect in January of 2020 called CECL, Current Expected Credit Loss Accounting. And this accounting requires banks to look through their portfolio through a cycle and set aside reserves. Many banks are anticipating 5% unemployment over the next 12 months in setting up these reserves. Unemployment, as you well know, is closer to 3.7%. So if we don't see unemployment going much over 4.5% in 2024, the banks have already set aside a considerable amount of money to handle the expected losses in a 5% unemployment market, which possibly we won't see next year.
2: All right, Gerard, thank you so much. Have a happy new year. And, and I know you'll be a busy soul because uh, those banks start reporting the second week of January. J.P. Morgan City uh, coming out on Friday the 12th uh, and then the following week, a torrent of them. Uh, Gerard, thank you again. Appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thank you, Chris. What's the trade here? You ha- working for a bank, <laughs> said the banker. So the banker, as Steve pointed out before, we did our outlook
4: back in November. And one of the things we thought is the second half of the year, we want banks, we want financials that with the change with the Fed, we're probably moving that from six, six months from now to probably six weeks from now or, or potentially because it's right. If you're not going to have unemployment really ratchet up, then that credit cycle is not going to bite the way you thought it would. Furthermore, we may have some M&A, or, or we could start thinking about and looking at, at M&A and a and m and activity. A lot of the investment portfolios have now improved significantly. It's a question of do we get a change in regulation, do we get a change in administration? But overall, when you look at the valuation, when you look at the credit cycle, and, and you look at the fact that these are not well-owned or, or over-owned sectors, it becomes really, really interesting. The problem, or, or the one pushback you have, is the KRE, the ETF for Um, Mid cap and small cap banks is up 40 percent since the low. That's tough to just kind of jump on right here right now. And so you might want to wait. And and that's what we're thinking about. Again, we're looking for that opportunity where maybe fourth quarter numbers aren't that great. We get a little bit of hiccup. We get a pushback from all the positive from that. Everyone thinking the Fed's going to be really aggressive and that becomes your opportunity. But overall, things are setting up very nicely for the banks and for the financials.
3: Courtney,
2: do financials interest you? And if so, which part of financials?
3: Yeah, they absolutely are interesting because if, if we are right that a soft landing will happen, what that's going to mean is more people are borrowing because rates are going down and more risk that's taking. And so that's where the banks are going to benefit. Um, I do like, I mean, some of your big names, like your JP Morgan. I know you're saying, is that the whole banking industry? Um, I do think um, that is something that you want to own right now. It's, it's one of the safer plays.
2: All right, Courtney, thank you. And coming up, China's EV gold rush keeps getting bigger and bigger. We will kick the tires on the latest high-end offering from a tech giant famous for its smartphones. Plus, this lowly laggard of the Magnificent Seven is up only 50% this year. Options traders are betting Apple is just about to retest its all-time highs. How soon? We will get the definitive answer right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money, the year's worst performer in the Magnificent Seven relatively speaking, is on track to close out the year, up 50 percent. Apple ticking higher today within striking distance of its all-time highs. And one options trader is betting the tech titan could hit that target all-time high very soon. Mike Coe, what are you seeing and why? Yeah, so uh, we saw calls outpacing puts by about 2 to 1.
1: That's above average for Apple. Now, unsurprisingly, the most active contracts were those that expire at the end of this week. But if you look to January regular way expiration, it was the 195 calls trading for a little over 3 bucks that caught my eye that over 15,000 of those traded. An institutional buyer paid $3.12 for the Jan 195 calls 1,350 times. Why is that important? Because the break even on that is 198.12, which is a penny above the all-time high that we just saw earlier this month of 198.11. So that trader is obviously expecting it to hit new all-time highs in three weeks. Mr. Grasso? Yeah, my guess is that we've all been looking
5: at this, whether whether it's the the highest valued company in the world and how many headwinds are are coming at it from all sides. And if you if you look at the path on the technicals, it looks as if we are going to blow past. We've been inching up to that two hundred dollar price mark. And once you keep Hitting that level, it weakens that resistance. So I would say Mike's uh, Mike's pointing out that person who
2: made that bet is probably a safe bet where it's probably pops above 200. Courtney, the company, uh, for the first time in a long time, they've had sales challenges, mm-hmm. uh, revenue challenges. What do you think of Apple?
3: Yeah, I think longer term, actually, I think where their opportunity lies, um, you know, China, I think, has been their big story. I think India is actually going to be longer term, their story when we're looking at sales and as that becomes a bigger source for them. Um, Shorter term, though, as we look into next year, I think one thing that's going to benefit them is as the dollar weakens, which has been happening, and they do have a lot of overseas business, that's actually going to help improve their profits. It's
2: going to help them as they repatriate those. And you tend
3: to get a lot of money that's going into ETFs. That is one of the largest holdings, which is going to bring more money into Apple. So I could see short term this continuing to go up um, for all of those reasons.
2: All right. Let's uh, take a break. Coming up, a new contender emerges in the biggest electric vehicle market on the planet. We will look under the hood of the brand-new EV offering from the Chinese tech giant, famous for its smartphones. More Fast Money after this. Welcome back to Fast Money, everybody. Chinese consumer electronics company Xiaomi Unveiling its entry into China's world-leading electric vehicle market today, the SUKi is meant to compete with offerings from Tesla and Porsche when it hits the market next year, so aiming high-end. Xiaomi has been developing the vehicle for some three years at a cost of $1.2 billion. Xiaomi, famous for its smartphones, says its new EV beats the Porsche Taycan and the Tesla Model S on acceleration. That's quick, and it has a range of up to, get this, 500 miles compared with about 300, Steve Grasso, for the Tesla. uh, We're at a race to
5: zero. All all of these things are so fast. I I, I don't even know who needs to go that fast. I mean, zero to 60 in two points. That's a motorcycle speed at this point. So when we look at them all, I I said this in the past. The people who have to worry, the companies that have to worry about the competition are the Fords and the GMs. Tesla, if you own a Tesla, which you do, do. if you own a Tesla, people rave about it. Mike owns a Tesla. He loves the car. He has a couple of Teslas, I do believe. So if you own a Tesla, you already have that brand loyalty. It's trying to capture the person making their first EV. And Tesla has a lock on their clientele. GM and Ford do not.
2: All right. Let's talk a little bit about it. What do you think, Court? Court?
3: And I I completely agree with you there. I think here, especially in the U.S., Tesla is, you know, far and away. I mean, it's the Model Y is the best selling car right now. Um, But most EVs are still sold in China. And I think that's something that that's Elon Musk even came out and said of his biggest competitors, it's China that he has to worry about. And I think you see stories like this coming out and seeing that they are clearly working on stuff that is creating competition there so i don't know how much here in the u.s is gonna be a problem but globally speaking i think it is something i
2: don't even know do we bring in any chinese evs i don't whether they're banned or not mike do you happen to know mike co you
1: know i don't know about the chinese uh (laughs) evs although we are going to be getting some chinese parts in some of uh the evs that we do have i i I'm kind of dubious about the claims that they're making here. 500-mile range, first of all, it's just simple physics. So first of all, to out-accelerate, say, a Model S Plaid, you need to accelerate it more than 1.2 G, which is is basically the limit for a street-legal tire at this point. So it's not a question of horsepower. It's just a a question of friction. So that seems a little bit dubious. 500-mile range also... You know, the Model Y, I think, has about 3.8 miles per kilowatt hour. So, you know, if you sort of work things out and you say, well, how big does the battery have to be unless they have a huge sort of leap in terms of the efficiency that their car produces, which is unlikely, too, because Tesla leads in this area. So some of the claims they're making sound awfully ambitious.
2: Yeah, I have heard. uh, I believe there's a story uh, circulating that Toyota is developing a solid state battery that could bring... to market in five years or more but that's about it that one could could carry you 700 miles so says so says some of the trade uh, some of the trades here uh final thoughts on on the ev world uh we were desperately
5: hoping for an ev to take out tesla i don't i don't know why tesla is so hated at this point but pe- people hate the stock and it continues to rise
2: and and they keep selling the cars as you say the model y the probably the largest selling single model in the country right now up next We'll bring you some final trades on this next-to-last trading day of
3: 2023.
2: Welcome back to Fast Money. Take a look at our very own Melissa Lee today in The Wall Street Journal. It is part of our Live Ambitiously marketing campaign at CNBC. A great month for Melissa. Fast Money on the billboard on the West Side Highway here in New York City. And now the wall street journal congratulations to melissa and all. all right time for the final trade let's go around the horn mike you go first yeah we talked about financials they're gonna be reporting on the
1: 16th of january i like goldman sachs let's go to you chris what do you say communication
2: space xlc great growth great opportunity Great momentum. Communications. Courtney, your call.
3: Uh, The rotation of value, specifically energy, I look at Exxon.
2: Looking at Exxon. And Mr. Grasso, what do you say? Service now. Full disclosure, Bill McDermott, a good friend of mine. It's a hidden AI play. Service now. All right. Great to be with all of you. Thank you for watching Fast Money. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now.
3: warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash fastmoneydisclaimer. People today can spend half their lives over 50, so it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Cannonball!